Welcome to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book, with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. So my name is Whitney Otaka, and my most recent cookbook is The Saltwater Table, Recipes from the Coastal South. There's nothing I love more than a cookbook that inspires me to visit a destination, and this is one of those cookbooks. I am dying to hear about the story of Cumberland Island, Georgia, and why you up and moved there in 2005. So, okay. So I didn't move to Cumberland in 2005. I actually moved, well, I moved to Georgia in 2005. And um, so I actually moved to Georgia with an ex-boyfriend. I was living in California. And when I got to Georgia, it was sort of love at first sight with the food. I I instantly fell in love with the culture of food, the history of the food here. And sort of part of my natural exploration of place beyond cuisine was also kind of visiting. uh, This is how I kind of like get to know a place. Anyways, I was I was visiting a lot of the, the state parks. And I came across Cumberland Island, um, actually on a PBS series, um, it's just national seashore here, you know, and I was living in Athens, Georgia at the time, and I was so curious about it. So I traveled to the island, stayed a night at Grayfield Inn, and just kind of like fell in love with it. It's, it's, uh, it's very remote, very removed, very unique. So as my culinary career evolved in Georgia, I, I kept going back to this, this island, this place that kind of mesmerized me early on in my discoveries in the South. And at the point in which I was ready to become an executive chef, I just couldn't get this place out of my mind. So I wrote the owners a letter and, um, I really saw this place as a unique culinary destination. I saw something that could be built here. I wrote them a letter and I came down I cooked a dinner and they hired me as their executive chef. Oh my gosh. So you moved, <laughs> you, you moved to Georgia in 05. When did you move to Cumberland Island? So the first time I moved here was in, uh, 2010. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Oh my gosh. So when you got there, what was the thing that you did or saw or ate that made you think this is my spot? You know, I talk about, well, first of all, is the nature, you know, like this, this place, this, the the island is, um, there's something sort of uh, mysterious and, um, also balancing about it all. If you work in professional kitchens, you kind of know that you don't, have windows. You don't know what time it is during the day unless you look at your watch. There's no natural light. Oftentimes you're working 15 hours. You're not stepping outside. You're not in touch with the things that you're cooking. So here is this really unique opportunity to kind of be around the things that you're cooking and to be inspired by the place. There's a window in the kitchen, however small it may be. Um, but I can, when we grill, when we cook over, you know, wood, we step outside to do that. You know, if we want shrimp, it's coming out of the intercoastal waterway, which is literally at 25 paces from my kitchen door. I mean, the, this place is like an incredibly dreamy place place to create food. So that will always inspire my approach to creating a menu. There's just endless sort of opportunity to be creative and uh, have access to your ingredients. Now, do you see wild pigs and horses? Yeah. So there's wild horses all over. 
the herds kind of stay in different parts of the island. So we have a very specific herd on this property and there, there's a ton of them right now and tons of babies. Um, and the pigs are very sort of skittish. So oftentimes I'll most likely see a pig when I'm jogging, um, especially away from like main properties. They tend to stay away. It's very rare that you see one on the Grayfield property. I've seen maybe one mama with maybe a couple little piglets on her side. In your opinion, what are the most iconic Southern meals? (laughs) No pressure. Well, I mean, for my region... It's a lot of the, the the low country, right? So my, my book kind of touches on two two areas, you know, that I combine into the idea of the tropical south. But most people think of the low country, right, as being the dominant flavor profile of of the Carolinas and Georgia, you know, and we have dishes like shrimp and grits, which are um, incredibly, incredibly iconic, you know, and I do a spin on my book on fish and grits, which I think is equally iconic and maybe not as known, um, but I do a play where it's shrimp and fish and rice grits. Um, you know, you have pilaus, you have hop and john, you know, which is like a rice and uh, a pea mixture. Um, you have ingredients like okra I mean gosh tomato sandwiches those are so very southern there's just a million iconic dishes I could think of off the top of my head that fall in southern food what exactly is the saltwater table one thing that I noticed pretty early on is how salt kind of infuses into everything when you live on the coast. It's heavy in the air. You know, when you sweat, it comes out in your skin. You know, it's it sort of like a part of the food. You know, the salt water is where we, we get our fish, our seafood. So that is sort of what the salt water table is. It's it's that infusion of, you know, the environment and what it brings um, and how it influences the way we cook. Early spring 2015, I found myself staring out at the vast Atlantic Ocean. I had waded out into the choppy current to collect seawater. I wanted to make salt. You wrote in the introduction. Talk to me about that moment. <laughs> Sure. I mean, um, you know, I really like that story of sort of coming back here. So I, I worked here, like I said, in 2010 and I came back, I left after I did Top Chef and I came back in 2015 and I had, let's see, I had closed two restaurants and coming here. And I was a bit of a wounded animal, I would say, you know, as much as I didn't want to talk about it or feel that, you know, I, out of my own control had lost two restaurants and I came back to this place that I'd always been in love with. And the first place I'd taken over as chef and I wanted to do something fresh and I wanted to sort of, you know, approach this Island with a different perspective. And so I took on this project of making sea salt And I talk about in that introduction about how incredibly therapeutic it was because it was this sort of crazy process. You know, you, when you read about a project like making salt water or salt, you're like, Oh, I can do that. But the realities of the situation, you know, first of all, there's not a lot of cars on this Island. So lugging salt water over sand dunes, getting gallons and gallons of salt water back to a place to even be safe to dry is its own crazy challenge. But it was sort of this process of, you know, 
distilling this, this salt water, cleaning it, you know, laying it out to dehydrate. It took weeks and weeks. And there was times when, you know, rain would blow in because I didn't have it protected well and it would get washed out or all the sand gnats around here would land in it. But it was this, this process of kind of renewal for me, you know, taking on and being able to create something again. It was, it was sort of therapeutic. So it was very (laughs) important. (laughs) You said in the book, what truly great adventure goes as planned. Isn't that the truth? I mean, I mean, I just spent a whole summer traveling and my favorite moments are the times when everything goes wrong. Not in the moment, but afterwards. They make the best stories. <laughs> I find with most of these Southern cookbooks, the authors are from the South and you grew up in the Mojave Desert. What sorts of foods did you grow up eating? You know, the Mojave Desert was uh, literally a food desert. Um, It was not a place where there was visible locality. I didn't grow up near anything that was farmed. I didn't see agriculture, which is maybe one of the reasons I fell in love so very quickly with um, um, Southern cuisine. But, you know, And my family didn't have a lot of money, but my mother was a good cook. And my mother took on, you know, cooking from scratch for us. She would make bread. She, you know, like I... I grew up loving like packaged hollandaise on my broccoli. (laughs) Didn't we all? (laughs) (laughs) You know, like she cared enough to put a lot of effort into that. But, you know, the the one thing, there wasn't amazing restaurants around us. There was no, you know, fine dining. I thought Olive Garden was the greatest thing ever. But there there was from scratch Mexican cooking around us. And that's, you know, one of the things that really like, I loved to eat and it influenced sort of how I thought about food. You know, you could get freshly made tortillas in the desert and you could get homemade salsas and, you know, you could taste, I tasted mole at a very young age growing up in the Southern California Mojave desert, which was really intense for me. But to be able to be exposed to from scratch cooking of such quality was really important and kind of shaped my, my palate, I think early on. So you're the first chef I've met that tells a story of being taken by surprise that you were becoming a chef. Talk a little bit about that. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I, so I originally was going to be an archaeologist. I'd kind of decided that pretty early on in my childhood that I wanted to be an archaeologist. And I wanted to go to Berkeley for my undergrad. I wanted to go to Brown. Um, Egyptology was what I was most interested in. I also, I mean, I was in love with the French culture. I think a lot of young women sort of, you know, especially a woman like me that, you know, grew up in a very isolated environment. The idea of living in Paris and France, I just was obsessed over it. So I, um, at Berkeley, I was taking some French classes. I wandered in and found a flyer for a little French restaurant. And that's how I sort of made my way into restaurants. It wasn't intentional. (laughs) I didn't intend to go work in that restaurant and work in a kitchen, they put me in the kitchen because they didn't think I had any front of house experience, but I was really good at it. From the beginning, I was really good at it. I loved taking care of ingredients. I loved thinking forward as in sort of like anticipating the needs of what um, Eric Leroy, who was the the owner and, you know, he wouldn't have called himself a chef, but very much was a chef. I loved ante- anticipating the needs of when an order was called, what he needed, being ahead of it. I would do everything from prepping the food to washing the dishes to being the barista to dropping the check to clearing the table. I 
was sort of like I did everything in that restaurant. And I loved being active in that way. I loved running around. I loved sitting down to talk about food at the end of the night. So I kind of got sucked into restaurants and I kept denying that this is what I was going to do. And I kept denying it until I was, I think I was like 26 when I finally admitted it to myself. And it was the move to the South when, when I finally sort of realized that I was all along the way was discovering food through the lens of this love of history and anthropology and archaeology. But it was sort of morphing me into into becoming a chef. Speaking of archaeology, buried in Cumberland Island soil are relics of at least 4,000 years of human history. What's the most interesting thing you've dug up? So we, and when I say we, it's my husband, Ben and I, we have found two Spanish coins. Those are some of our treasures that we we love, that we've personally found. But there's um, really amazing sort of treasure hunters is what I call them, but they're family members. <laughs> they're, you know, they've grown up on this island and they know where to look. Um, Gogo Ferguson in particular, that's, um, she's an amazing jewelry designer. And she goes out and she finds amazing um, pottery shards from the Timucua Indians um, that lived here. She has found dinosaur bones, like a woolly mammoth molar. That's (laughs) so cool. Yeah. And megalodon teeth, you know, like extinct giant sharks. And I'm just like in awe every time I see these like amazing because I don't have the eye. My husband has a better eye than I do. You know, the people that can walk and be like, look at that. I'm like, rock, rock. I I literally was standing on an arrowhead one time and somebody else was like, what's under your foot? (laughs) (laughs) So your culinary exploration of the South was combined with love and friendship. Talk a little bit about Ben. So Ben and I met working at 5 and 10 under Hugh Atchison in Athens, Georgia. We started working together. He started actually a month after I did. And he was, um, he had worked at Blackberry farm and he came in and he actually moved to pastry. So I was a day prep person because I was going to culinary school at night. So in the kitchen during the daytime, it would literally just be the two of us or maybe one other prep cook in there. And he grew up in the South. He grew up in a small town, Washington, Georgia, you know, and a much more, he was younger than me too. And he much more traditional Southern family, their family been in the same town since maybe the 1820s. So he had this very traditional upbringing and I was from California and a little more wild and I'd gone to Berkeley, but we just instantly became best friends. It was just, I don't know. I can't, (laughs) I can't put words into it, but we just, we were best friends immediately. And so we had this great year and a half of building an amazing friendship. And then we along the way we're falling in love. So we've been working together, gosh, what, 13 years now in the same kitchens. We've lived most of our relationship on a deserted island where (laughs) we only have each other's company. But he taught me a lot about Southern cuisine. You can learn a lot in a restaurant, but I think you learn so much more in the home from the people's traditions, the way that they eat, the way they celebrate, 
the way they mourn, the food that they serve on these occasions. I think those things have really crept into sort of the soul of how I understand um, Southern food. It's that gathering point around the table, the conviviality of it all. I went to a Hugh Atchison dinner the other night here in New York City. Uh-huh. And it's kind of like you. He's from Canada, but he's sort of embraced the South. Yeah, he was, it was, he was an interesting mentor to have. He's very intelligent, very witty, very dry. <laughs> yeah, he was fun to listen to. Yeah, he, he was always fun to listen to um, in the kitchen, for sure. I mean, it was a very close-knit team those early days at 5 and 10 because he was still in the kitchen. It was before sort of he'd um, gained fame. And we just had a – it was a great place to grow as a cook, honestly. Tell us the story of Greyfield Inn, which is the only commercial establishment on Cumberland Island, and it has such a rich history. It was in the 1880s that Andrew Carnegie's brother, Thomas Carnegie, and his wife, Lucy Carnegie, first visited Cumberland Island. So the Golden Isles became this sort of interesting location for these northern industrial tycoons to come down and get away from the cold northern winters. And Cumberland sort of struck Lucy's fancy. It was Lucy that sort of really fell in love with Cumberland. So they bought, I think it was like 80 or 90% of the island. And on sort of this original hunting lodge, they built Dungeness. So Dungeness was the first house that's located on the north end of the island. Lucy, being a very Victorian-aged woman, wanted to have her children as close to her as possible. So for her married children, she built each of them a home on Cumberland Island, one of those houses being Grayfield. It was originally Gray's Fields. So Grayfield became the house she built for her daughter, Margaret, who became Margaret Ricketson in marriage. So it was passed down through their family. And in the 60s, um, there came a point when a lot of these, you know, beautiful old homes that were so large and so hard for the families to keep up were sort of, you know, run down. And it was the family that convinced Lucy Ferguson in the 60s to turn it into an inn. I want to say it was 1965 um, that they decided to make Grayfield an inn. And it started really small. I think they only had like four rooms and it was all of the Lucy's, um, Lucy's grandchildren who sort of took the charge and it's evolved over that time. So, I mean, it's been open for a good number of years now and it's really changed, you know, with the times and yeah, that's Grayfield's history, but there's some of the old houses still as well that are located here. Plum Orchard is now in the park system. Dungeness, unfortunately, is in ruins now. It's the Dungeness ruins. It was, this is an interesting story, supposedly in the fifties, there was a caretaker who had shot at someone that was poaching and hunting near the house. And supposedly that man came back and set the house on fire. Oh and my gosh. That the person was never caught, but the person is still in Fernandina and alive and brags that they were the one that set the house on fire. So Dungeness is in ruins. Uh, there was a house near there called uh, the Grange, I believe is also part of the um, the original five houses. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. I mean, you drive along this dirt road on this nearly deserted island and you come across these hundred year old mansions. They're just so striking and, and a bit spooky in their own way too. The only local produce 
produce you have access to is Grayfield's two-acre garden. What grows in your garden? Oh, man, we grow a lot of beautiful produce. Right now, we're kind of in between seasons because it's so hot in the months of August and September that we hardly can grow anything. We still have um, a little bit of okra coming in. Uh, We oddly get to sort of bring back a little bit of summer produce when the intense heat settles down. So we're looking for a second crop of tomatoes and cucumbers to come in right now. Uh, Leafy greens, we can grow everything from broccoli to cauliflower, kale, mustard greens sweet potato greens. We had some beautiful sweet potatoes come out this summer. You know, we have mokum carrots, high curry turnips, beautiful fairy tale eggplant, arugula, little gem lettuces. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely stunning what we can grow in this amazing garden. And that, that credit really goes to the different um, teams that have come through and farmed. It's usually uh, um, a couple, sort of like Ben and myself. I think couples do well in this isolated environment. Um but they, you know, they're out there every day, like we are in the kitchen. And it's great too, because we can go out there, you know, and be sort of like picky about things like, oh, this is perfect. You know, the way it is now, like we see it a different way sometimes than a farmer does. It's being involved and being able to walk out into the garden and know that it's being produced specifically for your kitchen. It allows you the opportunity to really sort of choose when it should be harvested. Like a lot of cookbooks, you break up the chapters by season, but your seasons are different. Can you tell us about those? Sure. Yeah. It was interesting process. It was funny as it was literally the first thing I thought of. And it's based on sort of the ecology of this island. It's based on the most prolific feeling of each season. So the first chapter is oyster season. We have wild oysters that grow here on the island. We do oyster roasts in the winter time. It's like the cold water. The water doesn't get super cold here, but the coldest waters produce really delicious oysters for us. They're briny and wild. Um, The second season is vegetable season. And that's a really great time for us for growing in the garden. And it's sort of that early spring, you know, to late spring where we have so many amazing crops that run together. I mean, we still have tender mogum carrots running into the first harvest of cherry tomatoes. It's pretty amazing the combinations we can get. So that's the second chapter. The third chapter is shrimp season. And shrimp is, I mean, if you've been to the coastal south, shrimp is king, you know, especially on the Georgia coast. It's it's sort of a main part of the economy here. We still have shrimp festivals. We have the blessing of the fleet. It's one of the things that you can find easily that's caught locally. I mean, everywhere you drive, there's a guy that's selling like shrimp on the side of the road. And then there's heat, which is if you've ever been to the South in summer, you know what I'm talking about. It's this heavy blanket of humidity that kind of drapes over everything. The sun is so saturated. The light is so bright. It it dominates how you cook, how you feel. You have to take breaks in the afternoon. It's just really intense. And then we celebrate sort of the breaking of the heat with smoke and cedar. And that's when you can sort of go back outside. That's the idea of preservation. That's, you know, when you're building fires again and sort of celebrating the year's end. That is the the, the seasons. <laughs> on Sunday night, I made your recipe for low country boil on page 176. Can you describe this recipe? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, low country boils are so very popular in this region. I really think in the coastal south, you know, everywhere from Louisiana to North Carolina, there's a version of a low country boil 
And for us here, like I said, shrimp is sort of the the king of our low country boils. So, you know, we we throw in shrimp, we throw in corn, we throw in potatoes. We It's just like this one pot meal. I, f- I think it's pretty easy. Did you find it pretty easy to make? Yeah. Um, what was interesting was I thought that the orange and then the tomato juice were kind of surprise ingredients. Are they normally in low country boils? I'd never made one before. You know, I grew up making frogmore stew, which is kind of a low country boil when I worked for Hugh Atchison. And we always had sort of tomato broth in ours, which I loved that flavor. And then the oranges for us here, we have a lot of citrus trees that grow on the island. So it was natural for me to reach for an orange as opposed to a lemon, which would be, you know, the obvious go-to. But I love that sort of like addition of the orange to it. It was just sort of that that Cumberland Island um, feeling that I brought forth in the book. One of the one last thing about that is that I love that you just throw it down and you eat it with your hands. You know, there's not the 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 pomp and circumstance of needing a knife and a fork. I think the joy of and I try to express this in the book a lot. There's something about eating with your hands that I just love. I love that feeling washed hands, I think I say in there, but I love that it's just there's this casual nature. People instantly relax when they're eating with their hands as opposed to at a table with a white tablecloth perfectly set with silverware. It just creates a different atmosphere and that's one of those meals that that really creates a cultural memory and, and sort of gives you a sense of real people. Now to my segment called My Favorite Cookbook. Aside from this cookbook, what is your all-time favorite cookbook and why? I'm madly in love with the Heartwood Cookbook. It is one of those books that takes you to a destination, and I just love everything about it. The storytelling, the writing, the food, the the photography, it's so rich and so lovely. I, I call it sort of my little like guidebook. I, I, would, I would keep it around when I was working on my book. I know the books are very different, but it was such an inspiration for me. And even the, the story, Eric Warner and his wife, the, the story of sort of going away and kind of running away from New York to, to Mexico and to Tulum to open this like project. I just, I love it. I love everything about that story. I love adventure and the food is beautiful and the culture of the food there is incredibly impressive. So yeah, that's gotta be one of my favorites. Where can we find you on the web and social media? I mean, everything's my, my name spelled out. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook and I have a website, which is just WhitneyOtaka.com. And I have a lot more recipes that I put on there. I have great intentions to do so many things kind of listing more of our travels. Um, I do travel frequently. A lot of people ask me where to eat when I travel. So I'm trying to get those posted online as well. So WhitneyOtaka.com. Thanks for giving us a glimpse into your life and for chatting with me on Cookery by the Book podcast. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. Subscribe over on cookerybythebook.com. And thanks for listening to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book. 